Good morning, everybody. Uh, may I add my welcome? It's lovely to see you all, and particular welcome to uh, Reed, who uh, serves on the advisory board of our church. Very good to have you with us this morning, and also Troy. Nice to have you back. It's great to see you. It really is. So this is the last in our series of studies in the Reformation. Uh, when we started this journey, I wasn't quite sure how long it would last. I wasn't even sure I could get one Sunday sermon out of it, and here we are on number six. Um, so next week we start uh, back in the Gospel of Luke, and I will be doing a recap uh, of where we've got to in the Gospel of Luke next Sunday morning. Uh, so do please join us for that. But uh, this morning it's the portrait of a Reformation church, page 828 of the Bible, and there's an outline in the bulletin of where we're going in the next few minutes. But let's uh, begin by asking for God's help. Well, Heavenly Father, we have been marvelling these past weeks at the way that you moved men and women of the Reformation era to change the church, to draw the church closer to the gospel. We thank you for their courage and their example. We pray, Lord, that in these days of decline and nominalism, that you would once again raise up bold men and women to stand firm for gospel truth, and that you would thereby revive your church, and that your church might once again be a powerful force for change and for good in South Africa and Africa as a whole. Be with us now, we pray, as we look at this portrait of a Reformation church, and engrave it on our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is uh, one of the most popular children's books ever written. Uh, since it was published, uh, I think, nearly 70 years ago, it has never been out of print. And back in 2005, it was made into the most marvellous film. In case you don't know the story, uh, the drama begins with some children playing a game of hide-and-seek in an old country house. Uh, one of the children, named Lucy, goes and hides in a wardrobe. Uh, on the outside, the wardrobe is really nothing very special. But of course it turns out to be far more than just a wardrobe. It turns out to be a door into another world. Now, the message of the New Testament is that an authentic church, a Reformation church, is rather like that wardrobe. It isn't quite what it seems. For those on the outside, the church is either uh, just a building, the bricks and mortar, or it's a group of rather odd people who meet on Sundays because they can't think of anything better to do. But for those on the inside, for those who enter into the life of the church and who commit themselves to following the Lord Jesus Christ, these people discover that the church is actually a doorway into another world. But of course, because that's a long way removed from the experience that most people have had of church, we need to take a step back 
and see what authority we have for making such an extraordinary claim. Well, today, as you've heard, is Reformation Sunday. Uh, It's the day when Christians throughout the world celebrate everything that God did 500 years ago to breathe new life, new vitality into the church. And so, on the last five Sunday mornings, we've been learning all about those great ideas that were recovered by men like Martin Luther, John Calvin and others. I say they were recovered because, of course, these ideas, these tremendous truths, were there all the time in the pages of the New Testament. But for centuries, the medieval church had neglected them. And so, 500 years ago, God used the reformers to put these ideas back where they belong in the driving seat of Christian experience. So what on earth does it look like when men and women are gripped by the same ideas that gripped the reformers and they're brought together in the fellowship of a local church? What does it actually feel like to be part of a church like that? Well, to help us this morning, we're looking at just a small fragment of a letter written by Paul to a model first century church. Unlike some of the other churches that the Apostle had to deal with, the church at Ephesus was basically on the right track. But it was a young church, and Paul was writing to tell them what church life is really all about. And the picture that he paints is as surprising as it is beautiful. His message is that when a local church is built on the teaching of the New Testament, when it really embraces the ideas that were promoted by the Reformers 500 years ago, that church is a picture of the future. It really is a doorway into another world. Now, of course, no church is ever going to do that perfectly. But in spite of all its blemishes and all its problems, in the local church, God is giving us a preview of life in the world to come. So glance back with me for just a moment, if you will, to chapter 1, verse 9. Just back a couple of pages. Chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes, And God made known to us, that is, to the apostles, and God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now you see, friends, that is where human history is going. That is the future. 
Contrary to what most people think, human history isn't a random series of accidents and coincidences. No, the message of the New Testament is that God is moving human history forward to the day when all things, that is to say, everything and everybody will be brought under the rule, under the unchallenged authority of Jesus Christ. And to the person who says, well, Simon, you know, what will it be like to be in a world like that? The Apostle Paul replies, look at the church. So the church is God's gift to the world. It gives the world a glimpse of the future. And for those who belong to it, it's a doorway leading into a completely new life here and now with wonderful new possibilities and new relationships that we never even dreamed about before. Now, if that is true, then when an outsider comes to church, what exactly is it that God wants him or her to see? When they spend time with us and they listen to some of the things that they talk about, and as they watch what, they, what we do, what should strike them? Well, our passage this morning highlights three things. Firstly, they ought to hear us talking about a gracious king. A gracious king. Look at verse 7. Paul says, To each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. In other words, every Christian, without exception, has received a special grace gift from King Jesus. What is it? Well, you'll notice uh, in verse 8, Paul explains what he means with a quotation. Have a look at verse 8. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, that might have meant something to Paul and to the early church, but it's not actually immediately obvious to you and me this morning, so we have to do just a little bit of detective work. In your Bible, you'll notice that there is a footnote at the bottom of the page which tells us that this is a quotation from Psalm 68. Now, Psalm 68 celebrates God's grace in rescuing Israel from Egypt. You'll remember that whilst they were in Egypt, Israel were in captivity. They were slaves. And God, you remember, brought them out with mighty signs and wonders, so that they were slaves no longer. They were free. But there was a problem. Remember that they'd been in Egypt for more than 400 years. So they had no idea how to live in freedom 
as the redeemed people of God. And so the first thing that God did was to lead them to Mount Sinai where he taught them how to live in their new situation as his special people. Now unfortunately we we don't have time to read all the way through Psalm 68 this morning. I recommend you find time later today to do that. But the point is that by quoting Psalm 68... Paul is saying that what God did for Israel then was actually a dress rehearsal for the much greater rescue that God would accomplish for us through the cross of Christ. And that's why Paul continues in verses 9 and 10 to talk about Jesus descending and ascending. He's talking about the incarnation of Jesus when Jesus descended from heaven to earth and became one of us. And he's also talking about the fact that after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven. And he did all of that to set us free and to show us how to live as his special people. And Paul's reminding us, you see, that if you, my dear friend, are a Christian this morning, it means that you are the most free, the most unbound, the most liberated of any human being. It means that Christ has set you free from slavery to sin, from a guilty conscience and from death. These terrible things which hang over the lives of our unbelieving friends and family are hanging over us no longer. And now we've been given a new start with a new Lord, the Lord of Liberty. And this new start is a gift of Christ's loving grace to us. And when outsiders come to church, that is the first thing that they should hear us talk about. Uh, So this week I was comforting a friend whose daughter has been wrestling with various addictions for three decades. Uh, It's wrecked her life, the life of her family, and now she's reached rock bottom. She really wants to change, but she's discovered that she can't do anything to help herself. She's simply too far gone. She's a prisoner of her past. And as I was talking with her father, we both both agreed that Her only hope is the freedom that Jesus gives as a free gift to everyone who surrenders their life to him. She knows about this. She's heard it before. But like countless others, she's never done anything with it. And we're praying that now perhaps she will. But I'm sure you see the point. 
When our friends and our family come to church, the first thing we want them to hear about is our gracious King and the marvellous rescue that he's accomplished, well, for all who turn to him in faith. But then secondly, when the unbeliever comes to church, he should notice that the church is a happy school. A happy school. Now, when we uh, talk about spiritual gifts, and I hope you notice we prayed about that in the confession this morning, we usually think of the various gifts of service that are mentioned in other lists in the New Testament. We might think of gifts like serving, or music, or encouraging, or leadership, or administration, or whatever. And these gifts are absolutely vital to the health of the local church. But my friends, what is so very striking about verse 11 is that the gifts here are not capabilities or skills. They are people. Now once again, Psalm 68 is the background. Because you'll remember that when God brought his redeemed people to Mount Sinai, he said to them, I'm going to take a particular group of people, the Levites, and I'm going to give them to you to serve as priests. And in exactly the same way, Paul says here that Christ has given four particular types of people to the church. Come with me to verse 11. It was he, that is Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Uh, Incidentally, grammatically, that last pair is talking about just one person. It's talking about the pastor-teacher. But what is so interesting is the fact that some of the church offices and officers that we're so familiar with are not even mentioned. Did you notice there's no mention of bishops or elders or deacons or wardens or rectors? Why not? Aren't they important? Well, of course they are. But what the people in verse 11 have in common is that they are all ministers of the word. That is their primary responsibility. Now, of course, the uh, apostles and prophets are no longer with us in the flesh, but they are every bit as indispensable to the church today as they've always been. So glance with me for just a moment back to chapter 2 and verse 20. Page 827, top of the right-hand column. Chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. He's reminding us, you see, that 
the apostles and the prophets are the men who have recorded the eyewitness testimony to Jesus in the New Testament. They are Christ's gift to the church. Then there are evangelists. Uh, Unfortunately, when we hear the word evangelist today, we we tend to think of the celebrity who flies in for the weekend and gives a moving talk and then flies out again on Monday morning. But the evangelists that Paul trained in Ephesus were not like that at all. When Paul wrote to Timothy, telling him to do the work of an evangelist, he wasn't telling him to start his own television show. He was telling him to teach the apostles' message about Jesus clearly and comprehensively to all the churches in his area. Today, uh, technology means, of course, that men like John Piper and Don Carson have an evangelistic ministry to the whole world as they teach the truth about Jesus to literally millions of people. And what Paul is saying is that men like that are Christ's gift to the church. And lastly, there are the pastor teachers. The idea is that having set his people free from captivity to sin and death, Christ gives them pastor teachers to teach them how to live. That's why in the New Testament the church is a school. I don't know what your experience of school was, whether you enjoyed it or not. I suspect for most of us school was probably something to be endured rather than something to be enjoyed. But the church isn't like that. In the New Testament, the church is a happy school. Why do I say that? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. So please glance at your neighbour to make sure they haven't nodded off. If they have, won't you give them a gentle prod and then bring them with yourself to verse 12. In verse 12, Christ gives these men as gifts to the church to prepare God's people for works of service. And the word translated prepare in our Bibles is a useful word that combines two very significant ideas. This was totally new to me when I prepared this talk. But I believe if we really get hold of this, it will radically change our understanding of church. First, the word translated prepare means to fix something that's broken. Uh, In fact, elsewhere, the New Testament uses the word in the original to describe the disciples mending their fishing nets. Apparently, their nets were broken and they needed fixing or preparing before they could be used again. And the word prepare also means to fill something that's empty, perhaps a jar or a container of some kind. So this is the picture that Paul wants us to have in our minds. Christ gives pastor teachers to the church to teach them God's word so that the congregation will be fixed and filled 
for works of service, for ministry. Now let's think about this together for a moment. First of all, fixing. Paul is saying that if the pastor is doing his job properly, he will be bringing God's word to God's people in a way that begins to heal their brokenness. They can't possibly start doing works of service for the good of others while they're still broken. They must first see God's cure for the problem of their own pain and suffering before they can begin to help anybody else. But the pastor teacher mustn't stop there. He must also fill them. Now you see the point is that when you came to church this morning, whether you knew it or not, there was a spiritual vacuum inside you. And as the pastor, my job is to fill that vacuum as God gives me strength. Now the obvious question, of course, is with what? Well, come with me to verse 12 again. Paul says that the job of the men in verse 11 is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. And what is that faith? Well, pay close attention here. And in the knowledge of the Son of God. So the pastor teacher's job is to fill God's people with the knowledge of the Son of God. That is the curriculum in God's school. There's only one subject, praise God. It is the knowledge of the Son of God. Now that is an astonishing statement. I mean, didn't they know about the Son of God when they were converted? Well, of course they did. But Paul is saying that if they're going to be properly equipped for works of service, they need to go on learning about him. Conversion is just the beginning of the journey. I think one cross-reference will be helpful here. It is a familiar one, but keep a finger in Ephesians and please turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Acts 2 verse 41. Now Peter here is preaching to the crowd and his sermon is all about the Son of God. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So 3,000 people all gave their lives to Jesus. What was the first thing they did? Did they rush off and start serving other people straight away, leading small groups, doing door-to-door -door evangelism or whatever it was? No. Look at verse 42. In verse 42, the first thing they did was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they went to school. Of course, the apostles' teaching was all about Jesus. And please notice that it wasn't a chore. These new Christians devoted themselves to it. And why was that? Well, because the teaching about Jesus 
was fixing them where they were broken and it was filling them where they were spiritually empty. Well, please come back to Ephesians because that is the pattern for church today. That's what ought to be happening this morning. God's word ought to be fixing you and filling you. Not simply for your own benefit, although of course that is important, but also so that you will be thoroughly equipped for the work God has for you to do. Now that may be a fresh idea for some of us. I think particularly uh, in Cape Town, this might be a novel thought. So let's get it clear in our minds that Christ expects every Christian to be a worker. Now we need to pause on this. It's very important for us to understand it. See, some people think church is about one of the professionals serving a group of customers. But it isn't. Listen to what John Stott says on this verse in his commentary. He says this, and I quote, The New Testament concept of the pastor is not of a person who jealously guards all ministry in his own hands and successfully squashes all lay initiatives, but rather of one who helps and encourages all God's people to discover, develop and exercise their gifts. His teaching and training are directed to this end, to enable the people of God to be a servant people, ministering actively but humbly according to their gifts in a world of alienation and pain. Thus, instead of monopolising all ministry himself, he actually multiplies ministries. End quote. Actually, John Stott goes on to say that on one of his ministry tours in the United States, he was preaching at a church in Connecticut. And on the front of the bulletin was the name of the rector and the associate rector. But underneath that, it said, Ministers, semicolon, the entire congregation. Now, friends, that is the model for us. At St. Barnabas, I feed you, and you do the ministry. That's how it is in every true Reformation church. So are you with me so far? When a visitor comes to church, God wants them to hear about our gracious King and his power to rescue all men and women from sin and death. God also wants them to see that the church is a happy school in which God's people are being fixed and filled for a lifetime of useful ministry. And then lastly, God wants them to see that the church is a healthy body. Now at this point you might be thinking, well, what are the works of service that God is expecting of every Christian? Again, the answer is not what most people expect, and you'll find it in the second half of verse 12. Paul says the pastor 
prepares God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Paul says the church is a body. Now that's interesting. Church, you see, is not a meeting I go to. It's a body I belong to. And I think that's a challenge to the way that many people think about church today. Listen to the way that one man described his attitude to church. He said this, and I quote, When I go to church, I want to pray, and I want to worship God, and I'm doing it myself. I'm not very interested in who else is there, and I'm afraid I can't abide it when someone wants to shake my hand in the middle of it all. But friends, that individualistic attitude misses the point completely. Paul's reminding us that every Christian in the local church is part of a body, and he or she has a God-given responsibility to build it up. In other words, if you're a Christian, you are a bodybuilder. Now that might be a, a fresh thought for some of you, but maybe you could use it to start a gospel conversation this week. So if a friend says to you this afternoon, what were you doing this morning? You could say, oh didn't you know, I'm a bodybuilder. I was bodybuilding this morning. Why don't you try that and let me know how you get on. Now how do we do this bodybuilding? Well, come with me to verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. Brothers and sisters, the, the health of the local church depends upon us learning to speak the truth in love. But what does that mean? Well, it's really important to understand what Paul is not saying here. You see, he's not saying, be honest with each other, but do it nicely. He's not saying point out one another's mistakes, but do it with a smile on your face. There are Christians, of course, who make it their mission in life to do that, but Paul isn't saying it. I think a better translation of the original would be confessing the truth in love, because the truth that Paul is talking about is the gospel. Paul wants every Christian to understand the gospel with such clarity that it becomes the filter through which they think about every situation and circumstance in their own lives and in the lives of their brothers and sisters at church. Friends, this is how we build one another up. We learn to speak the gospel into each other's lives in love. It wasn't long after we planted the church here that I found myself dealing with a situation that was painful for me and really rather difficult. And one couple in the church heard about it 
and sent me an email in which they spoke the gospel very helpfully into my life. They used just the right scripture to help me see both the situation and myself from God's point of view. And I realised afterwards how valuable it was for me to, to hear the truth that way. Now what did that couple need in order to be able to do it? Well, first of all, they needed to know me. There needed to be a relationship. They needed to know me well enough to know what was going on in my life. And secondly, of course, they needed to know the gospel well enough to apply it to my situation. Brothers and sisters, a healthy church is one where all the members are doing this for each other. If you do it, you might find that God uses you to bring someone through the door into new life. But equally, if you don't bother, if you don't think it's important, well, you will always be stuck in verse 14. Verse 14 is a tragic picture of the baby Christian who never grows up. He doesn't have any real relationships in the local church. And even if he did, he's never learned the gospel well enough to speak it into someone's life in a way that is loving and helpful. I expect we all know people like this. The gospel is simply a category in their thinking, but it's not the driving force in their life. It's not the lens through which they think about their own lives, or the lives of the people around them. And in verse 14, Paul says such people are infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. You see, they may be very keen, but in a crisis they are clueless. They have nothing to offer. And our only protection against being like that is to make sure that we learn the truth about Jesus through the pastor's teaching, through disciplined personal Bible study, by learning with our brothers and sisters in a home group, and by learning one-to-one. -one. And as we learn the truth about Jesus we need to be speaking it to one another in love. That is what happens in a Reformation church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, every day we're reminded of the terrible consequences of life in a world that has turned its back on you. The evidence is everywhere around us, in broken lives, in broken relationships, in the oppressive power of evil, and of course in death. But you've opened a doorway for us into a new world, a world of love and harmony, a world full of meaning and purpose with all the ugliness left behind. 
thank you that in every true church that follows the Lord Jesus you're giving us a preview a glimpse of what that future world will be like so Father as one man we ask this morning that you would make St Barnabas into a happy school where we all delight to grow in our knowledge of your Son and as we learn about him please fix us where we're broken and fill us where we're empty and may each one of us embrace the responsibility to be building up the body by speaking the truth in love to one another and all the more as we see the day approaching and all these things we ask in the precious name of Jesus Amen